Zero people. Hello, people. <laughs> hey, you want to welcome you to tonight's show? This is Bible News Radio. Yeah, it is, people. Glad that you're here. It is May 1st, 2021. Can you guys believe it's May 1st, 2021? It is amazing to me that it's already May. You know, and I know we all say that, right? We're like, hey, it's May already. So today's actually May Day. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. And it's also Lawyer's Day, in case you didn't know that. Um, and I only know that because I sell Legal Shield, and it's one of the things that we use different things to, to promote. But anyway, aside from that, I want to welcome you to the show. Glad that you're here. Hopefully you've had a good day, uh, like I have. And... I want to let you know I forgot my glasses downstairs in case you're wondering, so I know, right? <laughs> um, so tonight what we're going to do is we're going to look at two things. Um, so I want you to get your Bible, okay? And I want you to get a notebook or whatever, wherever you write. Make sure you have something to write with and, and take notes because I'm going to give you a lot of scripture tonight, all right? And then, okay, so then what we're going to do, we're going to talk about the cohab. The, the, the cohabitation dilemma uh, based on some new research that came out in March. Uh, and this is totally fascinating to me because it just confirms everything I know as a therapist and working with couples who have done that. Um, but this is specific to those who are professing evangelicals. Okay. Uh, and then after that, we're going to go ahead and we're going to look at... Um, uh, the criteria for a false prophet um, and some other things having to do with that. But first, um, I want to um, give you a fr- uh, give you an update on my friend Krista, um, who who is still in the hospital. Last time I, I got an update was a little while ago. Um, she's still suffering quite a bit in pain, and um, and if you're if, 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 if you were here last night, I shared last night that she has stage four, uh, cancer. Um, and the doctors, you know, gave her very limited time, but you know, doctors can be wrong all the time. And, um, you know, she's a woman of faith. And if you didn't get to see the interview that I did with, with her, go through my archives. And I think it's called living with a new normal or something like that. I'll find it anyway, and I'll tweet it out so you can go watch this interview. I think that you will be encouraged um, by her faith and um, endurance. You know, I think think sometimes, I mean, we all have trials, right? I I personally don't think one person's trial is any more dramatic than anybody else's because none of us live inside of our anybody else's body so we each have our own experience but um, I think when I see somebody suffer so much and they're still giving glory to God I think that that's a testimony uh, to their faith and and that's very Christ-like and that's what she is so let's let's pray for her and ask God to continue to touch her and uh, hopefully alleviate her pain so she can go home and get out of the hospital because hospitals are not my favorite place in the world. So I can, I could totally understand why 
and nobody likes hospitals you know so join me in prayer would you father i just want to say thank you for um the opportunity that we have to come to you again and uh, lord we lift up our sister krista to you and just want to ask father for your tender mercies to uh, be with her to comfort her uh lord and for your love and your peace to envelop her in a in a magnificent in a mighty way only the way that you only can do father we pray for your perfect will here to be done i ask father for your healing for her uh, however that looks to you um, lord we pray that you would um, just heal her according to your will thank you father for um, the bleeding that she was having last night with her liver uh, stopping um, and I pray that you would continue to give the the people who are assisting her your wisdom and uh, your insight, your compassion, um, um, and all of that. We also pray for Deb and Joe and her family, uh, her husband, her ch- her, ch- her daughter as well. I just uh, lift them all up to you as well and ask that you would just um, give them peace as well. And I pray that you would uh, encourage them all through your word. They're a godly family uh, that knows you. And um, we know, Lord, that you are um, fully aware of that. So we just pray that you would hold them, uh, comfort them, strengthen them, uh, Father, and that you would inspire them um, as they continue to look to you. Um, And Lord, we just look forward to your report and what you're going to do. Lord, I also want to ask that tonight as we uh, open your word, that you would allow your word to uh, instruct us, uh, to convict us where we might need it, and to to comfort us where we need it, to counsel us, um, so that we can live according to your word, and that we can walk according to your your uh, your law and your statutes and your ordinances and your precepts and all those things you lay out in Psalm 119 that Father we could just be obedient to you and I thank you in Jesus name Amen. All right, so I am going to flip my phone over here and I am going to uh, go over to YouTube and if anybody is over there I'll say hi and if not then I won't. <laughs> This is one of the joys of live streaming, and one of the things I like about live streaming is that we can do that. So if you're listening to the podcast right now and you haven't watched our show via live stream, I would encourage you to actually subscribe to our podcast and go over to youtube.com forward slash Bible News Radio, and you can... Uh, subscribe to the show where you can watch us. Of course, if you're on YouTube or Facebook, you can also go over to iTunes, type in Bible News Radio, bring it up on the podcast, uh, and you can go to anchor.fm forward slash Bible News Radio. I think it's Bible News Radio. It might be Bible News. Um, but anyway, you can go over there. You can watch. You, we're on Spotify. We're on a whole bunch of other podcast platforms. And I, I kind of jokingly say, well, kind of, not. it's not really a joke, I think the show's better in audio. <laughs> I mean, I do. You know, um, 
I don't think I was born for for the camera, but you know, uh, it's more fun, I guess, when you watch stuff, right? I don't know. Anyway, um, so there you have it. <laughs> uh, that's funny. At least I thought so. All right, so let's look at um, this uh, article that, that's over on Christianity Today. Um, this is interesting. Uh, Nancy Piercy, Dr. Nancy Piercy, she's one of my favorite uh, Christian apologists. She is a woman, first of all, uh, in the area of apologetics. She actually used to, to write uh, for Chuck Colson, and she actually pretty much wrote all his stuff for the most part. Let's just be honest about it. She got the byline while Chuck got the, the um, you know, Chuck got the headline. Uh, but the woman's brilliant. She wrote a great book many years ago called Total Truth. And if you haven't read it, go check it out. Uh, go get a copy of it. It's it's very heavy thinking. I had the opportunity to endorse it uh, when some my name is in it somewhere, like with my little endorsement. Um, and I had her on the show, gosh, I don't even know how many years ago it was. It was probably 15, 16 years ago I had her on. Um, but she's somebody I highly respect because she is somebody who She's a woman thinker, uh, and uh, she's brilliant. Yeah, she is. But anyway, she's the one that, that brought this article to my attention. It's by Mark uh, Regnerus. I think I said that right. And um, I'm not going to read probably the whole thing. We're just going to give you the gist of it. Uh, but And I think that if you're like me, um, then hopefully this will disturb you. Um, on, on a couple of levels. If you're not like me, you'll like, you, you might get mad. <laughs> you may be like, hey, you know, I'm really mad. This is nothing like, you know, what I thought it was going to be. Um, but I think it, I think this research confirms a lot of what I know as being a mar marriage counselor and my work in that field and stuff too. So um, anyway, so here we go. The cohabitation dilemma comes for America's pastors. First of all, that headline is stupid. In my opinion, that's the stupidest title ever because there is no cohabitation dilemma. I mean, hello, the Bible is very clear. Don't do it. There's no dilemma. Just saying. Okay. So with that said, <laughs> I will. <laughs> I'm sorry. Am I showing? I, I have to. Okay, wait. I got to tell you one thing before. Um, so Randall and I, we went on a date today. I know, right? Okay. So Randall and I have been married almost 29 years. And he is so much hunkier now than he was then. <laughs> Just saying. Um, it's your failing eyesight. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, you know, we actually, we, we went to uh, the chiropractor, okay? Because, all right, so. Is that romantic or well, what? Yeah, so <laughs> the chiropractor. <laughs> Okay, so this, this is the day in the weekend life of the harps. Okay, we're so boring. We are so, we're some of the most boring people on the planet, probably. <laughs> uh, so we get up. I'm doing my physical therapy exercises and try not to hurt myself. And and um, anyway, we go down the chiropractor. But while we were driving to the chiropractor, Randall was driving to the chiropractor because here's, I know this doesn't have anything to do with anything, but we'll just get to the point. So my car is very low 
And normally that's not a problem because I'm short, okay? But my car is a convertible and it literally sits probably that high off the ground. It's, it's, it's low. You have to really get in it low. And so Randall's 6'1". It's I'm not. Mild. I don't know. It might be a good, <laughs> might have a good seven inches of ground clearance. Okay, I don't know. Well, but you're six feet one. Yeah. I'm 5'4". Okay. He's almost a foot taller than me. Okay. I mean, true. True story. I'm a short woman. You know. It's uh, nine inches taller. Only. I totally look up. Like, I wear, you know, always look up your nose. You know, it's like, oh, there's I'm Hannah. sorry. <laughs> Just like you get to look at the top of my head. Yeah. You know, you see how white it is there. But any anyway, so we're driving. And I asked Randall to drive my car because, you know, it's been hurting when I drive because i am got this stupid injury going on. And um, <laughs> anyway, anyway, we were, I was talking to him about how I thought it would be cool to write a Bible study on people who hate to drive. Or not, it's not that they hate to drive, it's that they get irritated in traffic. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, hey, mister, get out of my way, buddy. You know, those types of people, like, why are you driving that way? And I'm just going to say, I am not that type of driver. I'm like, whatever. I mean, if you get me in a mood occasionally, I might, you know, slam my brake on and make the person behind me slow down, you know, and almost hit me, which is really stupid if you think about it. Yeah. But I am not the type of person generally... <laughs> Who yells at people and I don't outly ver verbalize hey you idiot you know that's, I don't say anything like that you jerk you know it's like here you are driving in the in the and all that anyway but Randall is and not in a bad way I mean he doesn't call people names or or anything but he instructs them you know so much so that Randall came up with this idea many years ago that he was going to put a sign in his car you know, have it reflect back so people could read it behind them, you know, and stuff like, st stuff like this bugs Randall. Like, when somebody leaves their, their uh, signal, turn signal on, you get behind a car and the lights beep, you know, it's like, it's flashing and they're not moving, you know. It drives him crazy. And he it's wants almost to as bad as not using it at all. He, he, but you want to get in front, and then you want to point to your thing. Like, they're going to be paying attention because they're not paying attention to the fact that their signal is on. Well, I've had that work where I've, <laughs> it's like... where I've got in front of them, and I've put the hazards on, and left and right, then left and right, and they're probably thinking, what's this jerk doing? And they're like, oh, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> and they turn it off. So anyway... All I have to say, we, I have to sit in a car with Randall. And I personally think, this is my, this is my theory, and you can disagree with me if you want, but it's my theory. I personally think that the reason why people get so upset with other people in, in traffic is because you guys all have root issues of, like, you want people to think like you and be like you to be as considerate as you. And guess what? That ain't going to happen. It's just not going to happen in traffic especially. And I think, I think honestly, the older that you get, the more intolerant you become in traffic. At least that's been Bareface's case. I mean, me, I'm like, hey, 
I can I can cop the little old eighty little old lady card. Like first of all, I'm short. My hair's whitish, kinda, and I can go. Oh hi, sorry, sorry. I'm doing the speed limit. <laughs> oh, the speed limit's fifty. Uh, okay, I'll do fifty now. You know, I mean, I I often look. I mean, you know, it does drive me crazy when somebody does under the speed limit. But it's like it's like would you like? <laughs> it's no sense getting mad at people now i do get irritated i will i will admit that i do get irritated when people tailgate me if you want to irritate me that's what you do just just don't tailgate me because because i'm not you know if you're like on my butt that's just not nice you know it's like you know and then the other thing that drives me nuts is when you're driving a lot and it's the weather's horrible and people are doing like 50,000 miles an hour in in like flash flood rain and I'm like are you trying to kill yourself or are you trying to kill everybody else here on the street cuz then you know in some of that traffic it's like see you're no different than me you just don't <laughs> verbalize it or I'm, I'm or maybe you do just when I'm with you you <laughs> don't no you've been internalized yeah I don't know. We have the same thoughts. Yeah, we did. What was the same thought we had today? The, the sign attendants. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Let's ask. The, let's let. Let's ask our three people watching. Okay. So now, <clears throat> have you guys ever went somewhere and you know there's somebody out on the side of a street? Nine people watching. Just they're so holding you know. a sign, but they're they're either holding the sign or they're they're sitting in a chair next to the sign. Pointing to the sign. <laughs> Have you ever wondered what, you know, like, I'm sure they get paid minimum wage, at least I hope. But I mean, have you, does anybody know the the reasoning why the sign can't just be there by itself? And so I like it when they do the acrobatics and spin around and the arrow signs and, you know, that, that gets, that gets attention. But... But normally, if this is a sign attendant, someone sitting next to the sign, first I see the sign, and then I see, oh, there's a person sitting next to that sign. It's not like they brought attention to the sign, the sign brought attention to them, so. What was it we both thought, though? Just, like, you know, what kind of, what kind of, how do you get this job? <laughs> is this, is this like somebody's nephew or whatever, you know, kind of a, kind of a flake, irresponsible, you know, but someone's obligated you know, the uh, the owner's sister's son, you know, come on, you can give him a job. And he's like, all right. Yeah. He can be the sign attendant. Mm. I don't know. <clears throat> all right. Enough of this. Okay. Let's talk about cohabitation and the dilemma, so-called dilemma. And by the way, we say hi to WD and Carol and George, Jerry and whoever else is watching. Nice. To, I'm glad you're here. Okay. Here we go. Okay, more evangelicals are living together before marriage. Church leaders struggle to respond. Okay, look, why? Why are, why are church leaders struggling to respond to this? This is not hard to respond to, okay? Just saying, all right, anyway. In early 2019, the internet was aglow with news about Chris Pratt and his fiancee, Catherine Schwarzenegger, moving in together. Media outlets cited the couple's evangelical Christian faith as the reason they did not cohabit until they were engaged. Few suggested there were any contradiction between Pratt's co cohabitation and his status as a devout Christian, a folksy, popular evangelical who, who urged living boldly in faith. 
All right, so first of all, right there, I'm just going to say, hands down, wrong, okay? And before I even read any more of this article, I'm just going to let you know, this article confirmed what I already know, and that is, number one, if you cohabitate, this is the research, okay? And this actually article confirms it. The research shows if you cohabitate before you get married, the likelihood of you getting a divorce is a lot higher, okay? That's one thing. Number two, if you get married, like Randall and I, we were both virgins when we got married and we waited until we got married. <gasps> I know. Oh my gosh. It's a horror story these days, but it's true. Yeah. We're some of those weird old fogey types that actually did it that old fashioned hoagie way. Um, what I'm going to tell you though, is that because we waited and did it God's way, the likelihood of us getting a divorce is a lot less lower, okay? But, but you know, keep in mind we're just uh, 29 years in, so anything could happen. True, but I can also tell you to cite <laughs> my mother's marriages and, I've, yeah. I'm being facetious because you look at the stats of people that have cohabitated and it, 29 years is not difficult. Right. So here's the thing, though. So we have... Um, uh, <laughs> I remember people like being all shocked. I'm like, why would you be shocked that we waited? Yes, we waited. We, we actually waited. Randall had his apartment. I lived in my apartment. Then I rented our apartment. I lived there. And then after we got married, Randall moved in. And my bridesmaids can totally attest to this because they spent the night with me in my, my apartment before Randall even moved in because, hello, he wasn't my husband yet. Um, <clears throat> and and why people, it's like, oh my gosh, that's just the weirdest thing since sliced bread. It's like, <laughs> it's... all right, anyway. Okay, so this article says, this may seem odd to those who recognize that scripture forbids all sexual ac activity outside marriage, but the choice that Pratt and Schwarzenegger made isn't contained to Hollywood. It's the new norm among young professing evangelicals across America. While speaking to a large gathering of evangelical pastors in late 2019 in Pennsylvania, I asked how many of them regularly face cohabitation in their churches. Most raised their hands. One told me that he had stopped conducting weddings because so many of his engaged couples were cohabitating and got angry when he addressed it. Another suffered bitter criticism from church members when he dismissed a church employee who refused to leave a cohabitating arrangement. What I've seen for years in large national surveys and learned in interviews with a spectrum of pastors in 2019 corresponds to these anecdotes. Evangelicals, especially those under 40, increasingly see cohabitation as morally acceptable. Most young evangelicals have engaged in it or expect to. Simply put, living together is far more common and accepted than Christians realize. American pastors are grappling with how to navigate wedding policies and premarital counseling among cohabitating congregants. But one thing is certain, if the church is to preserve and protect marriage, something about its approach has to change. Yeah, like the pastors need to get a spine and actually preach against it and implement church discipline and throw people out of the church who aren't going to obey the word of God. I mean, hello. That's how simple it is, you know? But the problem is, is as Janet Parcel used the word, evangelico, you know, people 
they're they're wishy-washy and they 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 don't have respect for god's word in fact they blatantly disobey it and this and i'm just going to bring up this corresponding issue with this would be a couple that gets separated now i saw this a lot when i did therapy so a couple would come in and they would be separated right from their spouse one spouse might go oh you know what we're separated so i can date i can go sleep around with somebody else because we're separated and i'd be like you're still married you're still married which means no no sleeping around you know if you're you're separate you're you're still married you know you can stop that you know you if you're separated from your spouse and you're married you you need to keep your pants on okay and reserve it for your spouse until you guys figure stuff out right but there is this crazy thinking uh it's ungodly thinking that's like well you know we're separated so it must be okay and i'm like no it's not any more okay than than a cohabitating couple is okay um but okay I, that, that's all i'm gonna say about that okay <clears throat> call it fornication instead of cohabitation <laughs> Right. All right. The ha a habit of cohabitating. Evangelicals are most likely than Americans overall to approve of cohabitation. Still, a Pew Research survey in 2019 found that 58% of white evangelicals and 70% of black Protestants believe cohabitating is acceptable if a couple plans to marry. The youngest Americans are far more liberal on cohabitation with less than 10% finding it morally problematic. I think that's pathetic. I think this is completely sad. This age difference is clear among evangelicals as well. In 2012, only 4 in 10 evangelicals ages 18 to 29 told the general social survey they disagreed with the statement. It is all right for a couple to live together without intending to get married. 40%. The idea of waiting until marriage comes across is even more antiquated in other studies. The most recent national survey of family growth done by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and completed in 2019 has found that 43% of evangelical Protestants ages 15 to 22 said they definitely or probably would cohabit in the future. Okay, I got to say something. Okay, this is another rant, okay? Remember, this is the therapist talking to you, okay? In all my years of doing therapy, right? And I did a lot of couples counseling, which I love. Couples counseling is so fun. Just know I'm always observing you, okay? Uh, but not one client of mine, not one client that I had, not one client that I had uh, came in with zero venereal disease. Not one. Every single client I had, whether it was an individual because they were sleeping around or a couple were, that were having problems were sleeping around or they slept around before they got married and they had sexually transmitted disease. And it's one of these things that nobody talks about, right? Because nobody wants to talk about it. And yet, it's a huge industry, right? You know, uh, I learned so much about VD. Because <laughs> Randall and I don't have VD. Just so you know, we have, we have no sexually transmitted diseases. 
because guess what? We did it God's way. So there is nothing there that that's hindered our body parts or created problems with us. But it's a big issue. And it's interesting that you have this research done by the Centers for Disease Control talking about prevention and all this other stuff. The irony of it all is that it's the media and places like this that tout, hey, let's go around and do this, 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 and this. And they never tell you the consequences of that behavior. I mean, there's a reason that the Centers for Disease Control, control. you know, the CDC did this study. <laughs> um, it's It drives me crazy. Yeah. All right. Only 24% said they definitely would not. Over two-thirds of those ages 29 to 49 had cohabitated at least once. And 53% of evangelical Protestants currently in their first marriage cohabitated with each other <laughs> prior to being legally wed. Did you... Uh, yeah, it said their first marriage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, Protestants in their first marriage. Like, well, you know, their starter marriage. It's a given that they're going to have multiple. Um, the coronavirus pandemic also seems to be increasing cohabitation, according to the Population, Population Research Institute. As more couples than ever are likely to delay marriage, many are opting to move in together rather than be physically separated under the force of COVID-19 restrictions. There is no reason to believe that these pressures are not affecting evangelical singles. Bill Henry is Senior Associate Rector of St. Stephen's Anglican Church, a fairly affluent congregation in Sewickley, Pennsylvania. He has counseled at least 75 engaged couples, many of whom choose to live together and or sleep together before they are married and do not know they are sinning or choose to ignore the fact, he said. I guess more the latter. <laughs> Henry estimated that roughly half of the teens and young adults in his church are comfortable with cohabitation and that more than a third of older adult attendees feel this way. Pastors' experiences confronting cohabitation vary depending on the size and location of their churches, the strictness of their church's membership and marriage requirements, and the degree to which they conduct weddings and premarital counseling for non-members. But all the pastors I've interviewed on the subject agree that cohabitation has become normalized among evangelicals. In his 20 years of ministry, Rich Herbster of Mount Pleasant Church, a congregation outside of Pittsburgh in the evangelical Presbyterian Church has witnessed what social scientists have long seen as parallel trends, exploding cohabitation and declining marriage. <gasps> no. <laughs> in a time when our congregation has more than doubled in size, I receive only a quarter of the wedding requests. Our millennials are simply not getting married at the same rate that was true a generation ago. There is some reason for hope. The cohabitating habit is less acute among those who are theologically conservative and attend church every week. Even with shifting cultural attitudes, the studies show that evangelicals who attend church regularly or who regard their faith as very important to their daily lives are much less likely to plan on cohabitating or to actually do so. Church attendance and personal faith commitment make a huge difference. So, I mean... Christian faith versus cultural Christianity. Yeah. You, like, read the Bible and do, and do what it says. 
Yeah. Okay. I don't know why my nose itches all of a sudden. Nate Devlin, senior pastor of Beverly Heights Presbyterian Church near Pittsburgh, notes that those who grew up at his church and marry there are usually not living together. However, he said, friends and distant relatives of those from the congregation and, and those loosely associated with the church who inquire about being married at Beverly Heights are more often cohabitating prior to marriage. But even among evangelicals who believe cohabitation is wrong, few can articulate why. General Dodds, pastor of Beth Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Enon Valley, Pennsylvania, believes the majority of teens in his rural congregation would not be able to explain from Scripture why living together before marriage is wrong. Despite his clear conservative biblical teaching, it just doesn't seem to get through sometimes, he said. Erie First Assembly God Senior Pastor Nicole Schreiber has counseled four evangelical couples in the past year alone who were engaged in cohabitating. Many no longer see cohabitation as being at odds with their faith, which she believes is due to a lack of understanding about why it's a poor decision in light of biblical principles. So here they're both talking about the lack of understanding, which tells me that they need to do better job at teaching the word of God and showing them. Even I know people who are older, okay? And this is just something I've seen this before, not just in therapy, but I know people who are older who live together and they're not married. And um, the reason I've heard is because they do it because of money. If they get married, then they're going to lose Medicare or Social Security or whatever. There's some, some fund, funding from their government uh, subsidies or whatever there's there's going to be some type of financial impact and it's not that I don't empathize with that and understand that that is a a frustration and it, maybe it's not just maybe it's not a fair thing like okay you're gonna get penalized if you get married you're gonna lose this money but what's what's more right to be obedient to God and submit to what his will is and trust him to provide or to live in blatant sin that way, knowing that God disapproves of it. You know, I mean, I know people that have had medical situations. It's the same thing. Well, if we get married, then we're going to lose this benefit. And so that it's and, and, and that that is where I think the issue has to be dealt with at the legal level. Or that's where you begin to change policy and law. You don't try to go against God's law. You yeah, let's let's, God's let's law. abandon God's law so that we can uh, we can keep in accordance with human law. That seems like the wrong trade-off. Uh, just real quick, I want to say something about the early research that showed those that uh, said it's okay when they plan to marry. Right. Often but, they don't end up getting married, yeah, though. Well, try that with something else. I planned. I planned to get a medical degree, so I'm going to start practicing medicine now. I planned to get a commercial driver's license, so I'm going to start driving an 18 wheeler now on the open road. You know, I plan to get a driver's license, officer. So it's okay for me to drive now. I plan to. <laughs> It's not going to work with anything else. Just because you have intentions doesn't give you the legal right to act as if act as if you have, you know, that certification, that license, that you know, yeah, that that endowment to do that. And when you're 
taking of someone's, you know, intimacy, you know, physical intimacy that's not yours because you haven't pledged yourself one to another till death do us part, then yeah, it's 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 thievery, it's it's and it's more. But anyway. Well um, and this also to add another layer to this discussion, this also is another one of the reasons why the homosexual lobby is interesting to me because you have two people of the same gender who want to have sex with each other because that's what homosexuality is about people just so you know it's not about the relationship outside of sex that's what makes it homosexual is that they want sex with the same sex okay but they they wanted marriage so that they could get the special rights and funding and blessing of marriage to validate what they're doing which is immoral wrong and unholy and it's an abomination okay I'll just say it say it that way. Sorry if that offends you, but I didn't say it. God did. I just repeated it. Get mad at him. Um, but that's that is part of one of the other interesting layers to the whole marriage debate is like, okay, you have two people of the same gender who want to have sex with one another, which is unnatural, and they want it to be validated by the court by law, and so they get the special benefits of marriage, and that's the irony, right? So you have unholy people wanting the benefit of marriage but then you have godly people supposedly cohabitating not being obedient to the the framework of marriage that god gave right and those people kind of flip god off in a sense because they're like well i don't really care what you said i'm going to do it my way and in the long run they they reap what they sow and it's both, both situations are an affront to the Holy One. You know, if, if God created man and woman in his image, which he did, then Satan, his goal is to do anything that he can do to mar that image. If marriage between man and woman is a representation of Christ in the church, as we look at in Ephesians, then if you can mar that representation, then you're marring, you're marring what the bride and the bridegroom in Christ's image is, is all about. Um, and that's another reason why if you read Hosea, it's a very, uh, it's a very touching book, but it's, it's, it's a heart wrenching book too, because it, it, it shows you that, you know, how much God woos and longs for his bride, even though she's a prostitute. And these things that we're talking about, essentially, let's just be honest, it amounts to prostitution, okay? Um, if you're cohabitating, you're 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 prostituting yourself out. If if you're homosexual, you're prostituting yourself out. I mean, there's there's I know I it doesn't sound clean using that language though, does it? And yet, sin is deceitful, and it while it looks convenient and beautiful, there are consequences to the sin, and you know someday. We're all going to stand before God and give an account for what we've done. And the sins that we commit sexually in our body, we're going to be accountable for that before God. And so why pastors have a problem talking to their, their church, I think sometimes it has to do with the fact, and I say this based on my experience as well. When I was, a, I don't know, about 20, I, I, did a, I had a job where I, I did telemarketing and my whole 
um, purpose in that job was to call churches, to set up appointments, to get uh, some guy come in to be able to do some marketing uh, um, fundraising for the church. And so my job was to get through the, the the Barracuda secretary, you know, the gatekeeper, and be able to talk to pastors. Well, I had no problem because, you know, people, I, I, I don't know, I have a gift. Anyway, and people will tell me anything, and I always get through. I was always talking to the pastors. And I decided to do an impromptu sur- survey about with these pastors. I wanted to know why they became a pastor. And the number one reason I got was because they wanted people to like them. I remember one black pastor, he gave me the best answer. He was like, God called me to it when I was a child. Anyway, he wanted, he's like preaching, you know, and I'm like, okay, guy, you're actually called to be a pastor. All these other people, they just wanted to be liked. So if that's the majority of pastors out there, you know, they become pastors because they wanted to be liked. They want to have a position of influence and stuff. It's not because they really give a rip about God's word and trying to teach it. Then that explains why they don't enforce the word of God and they don't teach it. Because it's hard to tell people the truth when their feelings override logic, right? And we live in a very emotional society that doesn't like to think clearly on a lot of stuff. Um... (laughs) (laughs) And one thing that I've learned to do is take advantage of the package God gave me and kind of use it, you know, kind of like, hey, I'm I'm no, and and I'm just telling you my secret here. My secret is I'm a middle-aged, fluffy-haired little, you know, fluffy woman who will tell you the truth. You know, because what you can do, get mad at me. I mean, seriously, you could get mad at me. I like, no, I know, I know Dave gets mad at me, Dave Gunn. You know, he was in here last night picking on somebody else. He's a brat, you know, and he has some problems, but whatever. He can get mad at me if he wants because he doesn't like what I have to say and I can be unloving, blah, blah, whatever. But he's been listening to the show over like 10, 15 years probably at this point. So he's still listening, even though he gets mad at me for telling him the truth because deep down in his wicked, sinful heart, he knows I'm right about stuff. And that's why he keeps coming back. But here's the other thing I know is that I've seen it in people I counsel. You know, they might get really, really mad. But here's the thing. Discipline is important in the body. And the Bible teaches us that if God doesn't discipline us, then then we're bastards, right? That's the word it uses. You're a bastard. If God doesn't love you enough to discipline you, then you're an illegitimate bastard. On the other hand, if he loves you, he disciplines you because you're his son or his daughter, then he loves you. And all discipline for the moment doesn't seem very fun because it's not. It, it's not. It's painful. But if it produces righteousness and the fruit of that discipline, become you become obedient, that produces righteousness, that produces holiness, then you can go out and you can confidently lead and produce godly offspring. Because ultimately, what do we want to do as believers, right? If, let's be honest, okay? If we're doing the job that God called us to do, which is to make disciples, making disciples isn't for cowards, okay? I mean, just like, let's say, let's let's use a baseball analogy, you know? You're never going to become a great hitter unless you practice hitting the ball, right? And you're never going to become a great pitcher unless you practice throwing a good pitch. 
Uh, and it's the same thing. You're never going to get spiritually disciplined and grow mature in your life unless you practice the things that are difficult and you do them continually. You're going to fall. You're going to have to get back up. You're going to repent. You're going to have to keep walking. Then, then you'll repent again because you'll mess up. Uh, you know, and God is so good that he gave us that opportunity. He didn't say, hey, if you screw up once, you're out. <laughs> you're out of the game. You know, you struck out. You're in the, you know, you're thrown out. You know, you're benched for season. You know, you're. that's not the case. God is merciful. He'll, in fact, sometimes he'll pick us up off the bench, put us back in the game when we least expect it in order to show us where we've grown uh, and ultimately so that we give him the glory. Um, it is, it is, it is good to be disciplined. It's good to consider God's word because he's a holy God and deserves to be honored and respected and um and that fear of god has been lost in the church so i know i feel like I'm, we've gone up gone gone over a little bit on this topic so i'll just like lay lay it at that and just kind of end it there on that topic because i know that some of you tuned in because <laughs> you wanted to hear about the false prophet stuff uh but randall do you want do you want to sh- share anything else on that topic on the cohabitation topic yeah. Yeah, it's not people. The Bible is not a bunch of rules just to make sure we can follow rules. It's not like a test of God to see if you'll be a good little soldier or soldierette and see just if you can follow directions. The the laws of God are good. God is good and does good. <laughs> and you know, every I've heard good, that before. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, uh, from the Father of Lights. And the and the guidelines that He's put forth, like keeping the marriage bed holy, and uh, not to fornicate, not to sin against your own body, and flee sexual immorality. And we could go on and on and on. Uh, those things regarding sexual purity. In fact, as as the uh, Israelites were about to enter the Promised Land for the first time in in Leviticus, Leviticus eighteen, right? Uh, anyway, it, it's it's where we get the the controversial passage about homosexuality. It all, there's a whole list of sexual uh, malpractices in there. And it says, "Did uh, and it says these things were done by the nations who I'm driving out before you, and it's done elsewhere in the world. But you're not to mimic it. You're not to be like it, lest the land vomit you out. Um, the nuclear family, one man, one woman, uh, their union, and their children, etc. I mean, that's that is the." That is the building block of civilization and humanity, and and I mean you can read secular study after secular study uh, about the the welfare and the and the overall health of a person that comes coming from a home with a mother and a father and a good relationship, all that. Um, so these things that God puts in his word for governing our sexuality are for our good 
and stage you talked about the STDs we can talk about the emotional problems I mean talk to anyone who's you know talk about you know cohabitated and broken up fatherlessness and you know it's it's the correlation with crime and and depression and uh, this prison is, and it, and it goes on Drug and use. on and on the ripples go out and out and out and yep. it's not because it's not because you know it could be people who who've never read the bible or anything like that it's not because they're being rebellious and they ah, forget you know it's just the it's what naturally happens in the natural world with natural human beings if they fall outside of those guidelines and god who made us knows how we work and how we work best and it's it's within that framework of the traditional family and so those who ignore that ignore it to their peril i mean it's to their own harm that they do that and the statistics statistics sadistics <laughs> if you're taking a class it is sadistics yeah bear it out history bears <laughs> it out um talk to person after person and tell them what benefit they had from cohabitating I, how I, it set them up for success in the relationship i i will tell you in my 15 years of doing therapy with with clients I will tell you, I never had one client tell me that, well, I, I never, I, all my clients said that they wished that they had not done it that way. Let's put it that way. I didn't have one client go, oh yeah, I was fine with it. I love the consequences. No, they were in therapy for a reason. And, you know, I remember sitting there because, you know, my clients didn't know my background but I remember sitting there thinking to myself, I know God rescued me from that route. You know, I mean, because of my background being sexually abused before marriage, um, you know, that type of violation against the, you know, but against the human being, when you're having, when boundaries are being crossed and you're being violated, well then, you know, of course you have a choice. You always have a choice. And this is, I think, ultimately what bothers me is because we live in such a culture where vict vic being a victim is celebrated. It, it's touted, it's lifted up like this is a great thing. Um, and where, you know, you don't take personal responsibility, you blame instead. But that's not true. The mark of maturity is that you take personal responsibility for your actions. You know, I mean, let's talk about um, eating just as an example, Randall and I right before this show. Okay, so I have some eating issues, right? I have dairy intolerance. I have gluten intolerance. I have like all this list of stuff I'm not supposed to be eating. And I got an email earlier today from Andy's Frozen Custard. Okay, just going to share this with you because this I'm sure will excite you. Andy's is great. I love it, right? But what I'm going to tell you is if I eat it, it don't love me that much, okay? Uh, my throat swells up. I, I, I have adverse, you know, um, what do you call? I have reactions to it, um, and which is why I kind of cool it with pizza, right? Like, same thing, bread and um, dairy. So I pretty much cut dairy out of my diet, which is hard to do because it's everywhere. 
And today I had this pizza. It had vegetarian non-dairy cheese on it. I was hesitant because I'd like never had it. And I didn't know what it tasted like. It was actually really good on a cauliflower crust. That pizza that I ate was actually good. It had cauliflower as its base, which is a vegetable. And it had some non-dairy cheese, which tasted pretty good. And then I put some meat on it because meat I'm fine with. I don't have a problem with any meat. Um, but when it comes to sweets, yours truly likes sugar. That's why yours truly is a little bit fatter than she should be, but I've always been fat. But coming back to personal responsibility, I'm responsible for what I put in my face, right? So if I want to suffer the consequences of eating something that doesn't, my body does not like, then it's my choice. But I can't then sit around and go, oh, woe is me. This is how I'm feeling. If I was doing this, this, you know, and it's all your fault, you know. Can't do that. So I told. So Randall's like, "Well, why don't we? You know, we're not going to go do Andy's after this, are we?" And I'm like, well, "I'm okay with it." And I'm sitting here. It's like, "Well, I'm supposed to be guarding you." And I'm like, "You know, I'm responsible for what I eat." And, and the truth is, I can eat a little dairy like that, and it won't bug me. But the reality is, I don't want to eat a little. I want to eat the whole large thing. Okay, that's the truth, because it's good. So we were talking about this and I said, you know, here is the alternative. The alternative is that, uh, the alternative is, is that there is an avocado based dairy supplemental. Um, it's not dairy, um, uh, ice cream. Non-dairy dessert. It's, it's non-dairy dessert, which tastes like dairy but it's just not it's actually avocado based it's actually really good it's high in protein and it's not it's not going to do anything to hurt my body so i said around this why don't we just i can go get that you can get andy's if we wanted and go that and go that route and that's probably what we'll do but anyway um so the thing is is um you know it, it all comes down to personal responsibility instead of acting like a victim you can act like a victim, but seriously, where's it going to get you in life? <laughs> you know, that's, it's, it's not God's way to act like a victim. It's God's way to grow you up into maturity. And, and that is what, you know, you are going to have to deal with, you know, uh, and all that. So, oh man, so we're trying to keep this to an hour, but here we are talking this whole hour about, um, what do you call here? Cohabitation and stuff. Um, and <laughs> they're all the profits. So should we just do another half hour and try to hit some of this or, or what? What do you guys want in the chat room? Do you want us to do another show on this or do you want us just to kind of finish the show up? I see that my friend is there. Yeah. So, do I even attempt to comb my hair before going on camera? Good Lord, shaking my head. Well, that's probably because you're jealous because you don't really have any hair. Do you, Mr. Baldy? All right. Anyway, so what do you think, Randall? About whether we should go on? and Yeah. I'm having a conversation in Twitch, so I'm oh, slightly distracted. Oh, yeah. somebody in Twitch? We always oh, and they say go on for another half hour. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's go. Let's go on then. Okay. So, 
Um, so yesterday we were talking about the role of prophets, right? We were talking about how uh, a lot of people in the charismatic movement, they decided that they are people who, um, they, they prophesied that Donald Trump was going to live a, do a second term, right? So accordingly to scripture, they were false prophets because the, their prophecies didn't come to pass. But that statement that we read yesterday um, was nothing more than some charismatic leaders trying to cover their butt and basically say, well, here's some guidelines, blah, blah, blah. And while some of it is kind of sort of okay, some of it's stupid just because it's like it's pretty clear that if you're going to publish books, you're going to make money, you're going to put your YouTube, your your proclamations of what God is telling the whole world and they all have to watch you on YouTube in order to figure out what God's going to do instead of reading the Bible and figuring it out. Um, you know, they're leading many astray. So what does the Bible say about the role of a prophet? Um, so prophets are agents of God who acted in various capacities and they were required to carry out his will and fulfill his purpose. Um, prophets as God's spokesmen, they did the following. They heralded impending judgment. Um, for example, Jonah in the book of Jonah, chapter three, verse four says, then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Well, if you remember what happened to Nineveh, and what happened when the prophet, the actual real prophet, Jonah, went and did his job, Nineveh repented, right? And and God relented and didn't destroy Nineveh at that point. And Nineveh actually eventually collapsed a while after that. But at the time, Jonah the prophet was doing his job after God disciplined him because he ran away and didn't want to do his job at first. What not to do as a prophet? <laughs> um you know, the people, you know, Jonah went and proclaimed a message to the culture that they did not want to hear. Most so-called prophets today don't do that. Most so-called prophets today are tickling ears and trying to get money in their coffers because that's what they care about more than anything. So in 1 Kings 16 and 7, it says, Moreover, the word of the Lord through the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani also came against Basha and his household, both because of all the evil which he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger him with the work of his hands and being like the house of Jeroboam and because he struck it. So that's first Kings chapter 16, verse seven. And then we also see um, another prophet here in second Kings two fifteen to 17 said, she said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me. I love this, by the way. Um, thus says the Lord, behold, I bring evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even to the words of the book, which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath burns against this place and it shall not be quenched. So, Again, the heralded impending judgment. In Second Chronicles 34, 
She said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am bringing evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the curses written um, in the book. I know. It's time for me to do my physical therapy exercises. Anyway, um, curses written in the book, which they have read in the presence of the king of Judah. Again, it's the same passage. It's just reiterated in a different part of the Bible. Okay. Jeremiah chapter one, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Then the Lord said to me out of the north, the evil will break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I'm calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they will come and they will set each one his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem and against all its walls around about against all the cities of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on them concerning all their wickedness, whereby they have forsaken me and have offered sacrifices to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. See, there's a theme here. So there's judgment on their wicked deeds. Where are all those prophets of today declaring judgment on the wicked deeds in America or the world? Just curious if you've heard any. Also, if you want to write down Ezekiel chapter 5, 8 to 12, and Ezekiel 38, 17, um, it also also talks about uh, some of the other things that the prophets did in the Old Testament. The other thing that the prophets did is they advocated repentance. Now this I will say that in the charismatic movement of the day, you do see a little bit of that maybe that much when they quote if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways blah blah etc <laughs> that's the famous passage everybody likes to quote um in second kings seventeen thirteen, it says yet the lord warned israel and judah throughout all his prophets and every seer saying turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. See also Second Chronicles 24, 19. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord, though they testified against them, they would not listen. Jeremiah 3, 12 and 13. Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, Return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Um, and then we see this also in Zechariah chapter 1 as well. You can just go read the whole chapter in Zechariah. So the other thing prof these prophets did was they conveyed messages from God to the nations. Uh, and if you want to look at that, just because of time, I'm not going to read all this. Um, you can go to Ezekiel 25, verses 8 to 11, and Jeremiah 46, verse 13, Jeremiah 47, verse 1, Jeremiah 49, and Ezekiel chapter 25, um, and... Amos chapter one, yeah, and and chapter and part of chapter two in Amos. Okay, now here is something 
that we don't talk about a lot when it comes to the prophets and what the Bible says about them is how they actually um, displayed supernatural activities, right? So, um, for example, uh, they worked miracles. In Second Kings 5.3, she said to her mistress, I wish that my master with, were with the prophet who is in Samurai, that he would cure him of his leprosy. First uh, Kings 17, one of my favorite uh, stories. I love this, the story. Um, I'll just read this. It says, Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Uh, go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterwards you may, you may make one for yourself and for your son. Uh, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah. And she said, and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. Then, now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick, and his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you? And then if you keep reading, it, it, Elijah raises the child from the dead. So they had... The prophets had uh, the ability to do do miracles. They also had the ability to receive dreams and visions, um, which I think some of the so-called prophets of today, the ones about Trump in particular, they they would probably say they fall into that category. Except the problem is, is that they are wrong because <laughs> Donald Trump is not our president right now. Uh, and, uh, and that also falls into the category of the fact that they would also uh, be given the ability to help reveal future events. But again, the ones that we're talking about today were wrong. So were, were they hearing from God? Probably not because they were wrong, right? Um, so prophets often also were intermediaries between God and the people. Um, we see this a lot in Deuteronomy. In fact, in Deuteronomy 18, uh, verse 16 to 18, it says, this is according to all that you ask of the Lord, your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord, my God, let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. The Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So that is just one example, and there's plenty. Uh, if you want to read Second Samuel chapter 7, you can see it there. Chapter 12, you can just read Second Samuel. You'll see quite a bit of it in that book. Um, also, another role that prophets had were um, as watchmen. Um, in fact, Randall and I used to open the show with uh, with actually this this scripture from Ezekiel 33, 1-7, which says this, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people, and say to them, If I bring a sword upon a land, 
And the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman. He sees the sword coming upon the land and blows on the trumpet and warns the people. Then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning and a sword comes and takes them away. His blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood will be on himself, but he had taken warning. He would have delivered his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned, and as the sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from him. And that's important, right? So the job of a, a prophet uh, could, could lead to death, especially if he did it wrong. Hosea 9, 8 says, Ephraim was a watchman with my God, a prophet, yet the snare of bird catcher in all his ways, and there's only hostility in the house of his God. So he would be an intermediary uh, between the people and God. Prophets were also seen as leaders in the community. Um, they gave encouragement. They led people. They appointed kings and leaders. Uh, and believe it or not, they were also writers. Um, and we don't have a lot of time left to talk about that. But I do want to talk a little bit about a false prophet, what the Word of God says about this. So according to uh, um, the Bible, there's certain criteria for recognizing true prophets. So, for example, a true prophet's words will always be fulfilled. Deuteronomy 18, 21 and 22 says, You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Jeremiah 28 8 and 9 says, The prophets who were before me and before you from ancient times prophesied against many lands and against great kingdoms of war and of calamity and of pestilence. The prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, then the people will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. So, a true prophet's teaching also commends righteous behavior. Now, this is something that's missing today in the world of a lot of the prophets of the day, because uh, a lot of the prophets today, they're not righteous by any stretch of the imagination. Deuteronomy 13, 1-4 says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true, concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. So in other words, shun idolatry as a result. Um, Ezekiel 13, uh, 19, actually, Ezekiel 13 um, also goes on to talk about, if you if you read this passage, Ezekiel 13, 17 to 23, you can see more examples of this. And Lamentations 2, 14 uh, says, Your prophets have seen for you, 
faults and foolish visions, and they have not exposed your iniquities so as to restore you from captivity, but they have seen you false and misleading oracles. Um, okay. A true prophet's godly life will reflect his calling as well. So if he's got, if it's a true prophet, he'll have a calling. So in Matthew 7, it's another good chapter to look at. Verses 15 to 20 says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree, tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people don't want to accept fault, the false prophets today because they don't want to admit that they were wrong um, and, and they want to hold on to the fact that they ultimately idolize that person who's pretending to be a prophet. Um, I have a lot more scripture here. I'm just trying to do this. Okay, here's another one. A true prophet will also acknowledge Jesus Christ as divine. 1 John 4, 1-6 Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to this, does not listen to us. And that, I mean, again, that's, that's another thing. So if you have somebody saying, for example, you know, I'm a prophet. Yeah, I am. And I think it's okay to shack up before you get married because, you know, it's not going to hurt anybody. And, you know, we're going to get married eventually, blah, 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 blah. But if they're not living in accordance to, to the word of God, then you can know that that person isn't a prophet. They're not a real prophet. They're a false prophet. Uh, the motivations of false prophets include the following as well. Financial gain, right? Uh, there's a lot of that. Um, they intentionally seek to deceive people. Um, they are often involved in divination or witchcraft. Uh, you know, um, and, you know, they, they put themselves above God's word. They put themselves and their acts above, uh, God's counsel. Uh, they create confusion in the camp. Um, and let me just say, I mean, this thing, whole thing with the Donald Trump prophecies, you know, well, why is there so much dissension in the camp now? Well, it's because these people are false prophets, you know, and you have some of the 
so-called good prophets trying to justify the, the bad prophet's behavior by writing up this statement. It's a little too late. Like I said yesterday, it's kind of like them covering their butt um, and all that. And here's the ultimately thing in the bottom, the bottom line that I just want to share this last thing is, bottom line is false prophets are going to be punished. And um, I think God is giving these men and women who were out there touting some of these things that they're trying to say God was saying, he's given them an opportunity to repent. And if they don't repent, they're going to be punished. Uh, the punishment of false prophets, you can see that in Deuteronomy 18.20. It says, But the prophet who speaks the word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of another god, that prophet shall die. You know, God doesn't take lightly to people speaking on his behalf without consequence. Deuteronomy 13.5 also says pretty much the same thing. So the prophet or the dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. Zechariah 13.3, if anyone still prophesies, then his father or mother who gave birth to him will say to him, you shall not live, for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord, and his father or mother who give birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. Jeremiah 14.15, therefore thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who are prophesying in my name, although it was not I who sent them, yet they keep saying, there will be no sword or famine in this land, by sword and famine those prophets shall meet their end. God does not play around with people who are trying to malign him or misrepresent him at all. I mean, and that's, these people don't have any fear of God actually uh, in the end. But anyway, so that's, that's a very short synopsis of just some of the, some of what the Bible says about prophets, what their role is, what their consequence is. It's probably, some stuff you may may or not have heard, but some of them you maybe have. I don't know, but yeah. You have any thoughts, Bareface? Well, as thoughts, I was reviewing uh, Jude um, yesterday, and there's a great description that Jude gives of false teachers, and I think Peter may use the same uh, phrase. I don't recall, but I know Jude does for sure. When he speaks of false teachers and false prophets coming into that have mm. secretly crept in, yeah, you know the fellowship. He says that they are waterless clouds carried right. along by w winds, and <laughs> and if you're, it's my buddy. Yeah, he is. And we don't get it so much, and and. In Western civilization or city or suburb dwellers, where we've turned on the tap and get water, but in an agricultural economy without irrigation, well, look at the camera. There you go. <laughs> Isn't he cute? He's so cute. Dog, not me. He's been eating his food. I can smell it. You've been eating your oh. dinner, huh? Yeah, you have. <laughs> anyway, in an agricultural economy with no irrigation, no artificial irrigation, you depend upon the rain. And as the soil starts to dry out, your crops are starting to dry out, and you see a cloud coming, you know, clouds coming, the horizon, it's like, oh, wow, that's cool. You know, finally we're going to get some rain. If the clouds come and the clouds gather, the sky grows dark, and then the wind just drives in the way, you're left wanting. It's like, 
what the heck was that? And I believe the same way, these false teachers, false prophets, they're the water, waterless clouds. They look like they're going to bring, you know, nourishment, refreshment. Uh, you know, in scripture, water is often referred to as spiritual nourishment. Yeah. You know, the woman at the well, in the water, Jesus promises, you know, living water. And he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him, you know, come to me. And John chapter 6, and Ephesians chapter 5, the husband is supposed to, you know, uh, you know, present his wife a beautiful thing with washing of the water of the word. Uh, etc. We could go on and on throughout Scripture where that water is that spiritual refreshment. And so I think these false prophets, I think, I would say, I know they're like waterless clouds. They have an appearance of like, oh, they're going to bring something and they, you know, clouds are gathering, whatever. And then, and then the wind blows them on to some new thing. If it's not who's going to be president, it's whatever. And then and then people are just, they haven't been spiritually nourished at all. They haven't been spiritually refreshed at all. They've just witnessed a rainless storm or something like that. You know, there's, just, there's been some visual activity and something interesting in the show to watch. But in the end, it's, it was waterless clouds. And so I think that's one good test besides... <laughs> The best test of they prophesy something and it doesn't come to pass. That's clear. Again, anyone who says thus says the Lord prefixes or the Lord is saying, I totally looks like he wants to say something. It does, but uh, <laughs> you want to say but, something? You know what? What what is the <laughs> what is what is the fruit of it? What comes yeah. after that? Is there any? Do you feel spiritually refreshed as a result of their quote ministry unquote? Um. Uh, you know, or are they waterless clouds? Anyway. Yeah. All right, baby, I get you down. There you go. It's our blind boy. Yeah, he is. He's blind as a bat. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, so you guys have any other questions or comments? Um, let me know. Is anybody on Facebook? Uh, yeah, Pam Gladden was out there earlier. Okay. Um, I'm going to guess. Still there. Or now I guess she bounced out. Like Tigger. Yeah? Yep. The wonderful thing about Tiggers. Yeah. Yes, a bouncy, trouncy, founcy, fun, 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 something like that. All right. Okay. Well, tomorrow is Sunday, and I don't, Randall, are you, you have a thing planned? I'm toying with lots of things, but um, okay. I haven't landed on a definite topic yet. All right. Well, we will be back. Um, You've been warned. So WD wants to know, what should we make of Jude quoting Enoch? Well, that's, that's, e that's easy. I, I mean, it's my, my thought on that. Okay, first of all, I love the book of Jude. We've taught it a couple of times, Randall and I have. I actually just finished teaching it in my Bible study a couple of months back. Jude quoted Enoch. So he, Enoch is a, um, it, it's historical for sure. Um, 
And as you probably know, I guess it depends on who you ask, but, you know, there are many scholars that actually believe the Book of Enoch is, is inspired scripture. Um, I think it's in, was it Nigeria? Where they have it in the canon there? Well, just the Eastern Orthodox Church. Yeah, the, okay, the Eastern Orthodox Church. Okay, so they they actually believe the Book of Enoch is uh, historical and inspired. Um, the fact that it's quoted, uh, like some of the other books, you know, that we see throughout, you know, the Old Testament, there's other books out there that are quoted, um, at least suggests those quotes are valid, right? I mean, it's historical at the very least, um, depending on whether or not it's inspired, that's under debate. I personally think, um, I mean, I could see why it would be inspired. Uh, there's some there's some people that wouldn't agree with that, but generally as a whole, it's not considered canonical. But but I I I personally think it could be the missing piece to what we need in the word in order to understand the end times personally but that's just me um yeah there in some circles there's some debate well was he really actually quoting from enoch he just said that the you know the seventh from adam prophesied saying but when you compare um you know the the text um english translation especially jude's greek isn't verbatim of the in the Septuagint Greek of Enoch but Enoch you know I'm going to guess based on because it's in the Septuagint which is a translation of the Hebrew scriptures is probably written in Hebrew though I don't believe there are any Hebrew you know manuscripts um, surviving of the book of Enoch it had you know been translated into Greek and if it may have been like retranslated in Hebrew, but as far as I recall, and I may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure there are no Hebrew manuscripts like original of Enoch. So whether or not he was quoting Enoch, we have to look, you know, his Greek is very close to the Septuagint Greek. And so I'm thinking like, much like Paul's letters when he quotes the Old Testament, even though he's writing Koine Greek, it doesn't match the Septuagint because he's familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. And it's like he's doing his own translation on the fly and does his own Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Whereas the writer of Hebrews is verbatim quote from the Septuagint. Anyway, that's for free. Does that answer your question? Anyway, what I'm saying is there shouldn't be any debate whether or not he was quoting from Enoch. Because when you just look at it. I mean, it's pretty close. Especially when you compare English translations, the English translations of Jude, which is in Greek, and the English translations of Enoch, which are in Greek. It's even closer in English than it is. Anyway, and so he did quote from Enoch, and obviously it was, he was not quoting directly from the Septuagint. It's not verbatim as the Septuagint translates the book of Enoch. So, again, as Jude, I'm thinking, it's like he's thinking of it as he remembers it in some other language and he writes in Greek. And so that means, to me, it was something that would be familiar to the audience. So he wouldn't just, you know, when these, he, he brings out Old Testament scriptures in his epistle and refers to things. And so, why just 
bring something that not in the Old Testament. It's like the audience, he expects the audience to be familiar. And so it was, going back to Septuagint, it was, it was bound up in that. It was so, whether or not it was really actually written by Enoch, of course, Jude says it is, that Enoch, seventh from Adam, to make sure we know which Enoch, which Hanok we're talking about, it's the seventh from Adam. There's only, okay, because you know, there's only one of those that he prophesied. So, and Jude's conviction is that it was Enoch who wrote the book. And so, or at least his prophecies are con contained in there. And so, what I think is just, hey, here's, and there's the also thing with Moses' body. And we're not sure what book that comes from. Um, I think it's Eusebius that quotes something similar. Actually, I just read something about that. Where he's quoting a book called The Assumption of Moses or yeah. something like that. But we don't have that book at all. What we know about that book is just the quote of Eusebius of that book. Yeah, so what, what you're saying is it helps, and it was possibly legitimate in the past, but maybe lost a reliable text. I think that's, you know, a lot of people, like I said, do believe that it's actually part of the canon, but for whatever reason, and that, people haven't. And that could be because we don't have Hebrew yeah. manuscripts. We just have Greek translations of Hebrew manuscripts. It's like... But you never know. There you know, should we be that, should know, we we be using the translation of a translation? You know, it could be. You know, a lot of people accuse. Well, we can't trust the Bible because it's been translated so many times. Okay, we want to wrap up here. I know. Okay. And their impression is that that it's been translated from you know Hebrew into Greek into German into Swiss and then blah blah blah. And there's been this chain of all this translation. We have this one at the end, like the telephone game. No, it's been translated multiple times from the original text but yeah that could be one reason because we don't have to our knowledge an original text of enoch so all right i'm done okay yeah i am sometimes he likes to talk a lot i do yeah he does okay all right anyway so that's why i love him because he's so cute and he talks a lot and he has great hair all right everybody thanks for tuning in i hope you enjoyed the show uh do me a favor share it with somebody and uh, like like I said last time, if you like what we do and you want to bless bless the bless us with a financial gift, you can go over to BibleNewsRadio.com forward slash give. Do that. Give to our Heart Tug International, our nonprofit. And um, remember, we are trying to reach the hearts of people one verse at a time. So feel free to share the show out if you know anybody who's interested in you know um, watching a show that that attempts to biblically be accurate in its presentation and, and uh, you know, uphold the biblical worldview from a biblical perspective. So we'll see you later.